Good morning. We've got some good voices at this church. And during worship, I hear it, and right there, I heard it. So we've got uh, John, wherever you are, we've got some male voices here, just saying, for the next choir piece. There's some other male voices to get. So, again, beautiful to hear the praise report with international friends. Young adults yesterday had a beautiful trip to the beach, and that was a wonderful, blessed time of fellowship. Our choir is working diligently to prepare this piece uh, that is going to be on September 15th. Pastor David's going to be going to India in October. These are all things for us and Dan. And the, um, also, these are all things for us to keep in prayer. These are all things to, uh, for us to be seeking the Lord so that we can be the church that he needs us to be for his glory. And just a reminder to you, plug in and find ways to serve. If you're looking for ways to serve, talk to our church administrator, Brittany McGann, and find out. We're always looking for people to plug in and get involved. I can't stand up here and not say it. December, not December, but the Deep South Men's Conference, Lexington, South Carolina, it's coming up October 20th. Register if you have not yet. Register, register, register. It's going to be a good time, men. And I'll be having a sign-up sheet to just know who's officially registered starting next week so we can keep tabs on who has not registered yet and make sure that you register. All right. So with that, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we can come together, Lord. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you for the people of this church, Lord. And thank you for your faithfulness, Father God. Thank you for the ways that we are able to serve you, to seek to glorify you, Lord. And Heavenly Father, right now we take the time to come into your word, Lord. To come into your word which gives us life, your word which anchors us, your word which gives us our purpose, Lord. Your word which equips us to do the things that you call us to do. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to be focused on you right now. Help us to take the distractions and put them aside. That we would hear what you have for us, Lord. And that we would not only hear, but that we would then do what you call us to do. For your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's an important reminder always. Turn off notifications if you use your device for your Bible. Uh, so last week, we studied verses 1 to 11 of the second chapter of John, and we got to see those first seven signs, wedding, water, wine. And from the lessons gleaned from that, we had a charge that hit each of the elements that we saw, each of the aspects that we saw within that passage. So to remind ourselves with wedding, did you ponder your relationship with Jesus over this last week? Are you truly married to King Jesus? Are you in submission to him as king? Are you surrendered to him not only as savior, but also Lord? And we're going to see today that idea of his authority. But we need to take stock of that always. We had water that came in this chapter. And, and the question, what do you thirst for? What are you thirsting for? Do you have that water dwelling within you that has you never thirst again? We got to welcome a brother into the kingdom as a brother in Christ last week, and he now has, Bill, that eternal <laughs> water. But do you have that? And also, what do you fill yourself with to the brim? Because remember, they were called to fill, and they filled to the brim. Are you to the brim with your time in the Word? Are you to the brim with your prayer life? Where are you with that? With worship, with service, with love, and wine. The best wine was saved for last. The best. 
And the finest that we're going to ever encounter is eternity with King Jesus. Are you living with that eternal mindset? Are you lost and stuck in everything of the world? Or are you truly living with that eternal mindset? These are essential things that we have to always ponder. We need to pray on, again, engaging with the word. Not just coming, taking what you have here, leaving, and then next week, oh, I guess I'll open this up again. No, you need to be dwelling in it all week long, daily. That's our call. Now, today we're going to be in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2. At the wedding, we saw water turn to wine. We saw a change that when we think of the blood of Christ, it reverberates for eternity. Today, we're going to see cleansing. We're going to see what happens as Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem at Passover. The title of today's message is, Knock It Off. And I have to say it like that, because for those of you, most of you know, I grew up on Long Island. And that is a phrase you would hear often if kids were misbehaving in classroom, knock it off. If somebody said, knock it off, knock it off. And so as I'm reading this text this week, that just kept coming back to mind. Knock it off. And as we go through this, I want you all to ponder where might Jesus be telling you in your life with a habit, with a thought, with something, knock it off. We're called, saints, to search our hearts for him, to have him search us, to have him refine us so that we can be who he needs us to be. We refine ourselves against his word, that double-edged sword. But we need to do that and we have to examine ourselves, we have to search ourselves and we got to do it daily. The culture has too much that creeps in, that tries to distract, that tries to get us off course. And we can get stuck in routine, we can get stuck in habit and then we're on autopilot. And that's a dangerous place to be. We can't be on autopilot. This Wednesday in Psalm 9, we studied the first two verses of that psalm alone. Because we had to ponder, how is one able to be able to say, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart? How does one get to a place where one can truly say that with their whole heart? And only the Holy Spirit would have us, as we're pondering our whole hearts, at this text of Scripture where we are today, where we again are going to see the cleansing taking place. And it's a reminder to us, and I've said this before, you need to be pondering the scripture the Lord is putting in front of you in this season of your life. He has us in Psalms, he has us in John, he may have you in your own study in a certain chapter and book, he may have you then as a family in a certain chapter and book, and seek from the Holy Spirit, how are you bringing this all together? Turn Psalm 139, 23, 24 to a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We never arrive, ever. We can't have this idea on this side of eternity that we've got it together, or that we're good to go, or I'm good, I'm okay right now. We don't. We continually need his refining. We hear of the refining. I'm going to read a passage before we get to our main scripture in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This passage is going to come back as we go through our portion of scripture today. But this reminds us who Jesus is. The refiner's fire. So with that, let's stand up and let's dig into John chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 12 to 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Heavenly Father, thank you that you preserve your word for us. Lord God, as we ponder these verses, search the hearts of every single one of us in this room, Lord, that we would be reading your word and having you, Lord, reveal to us your truth, Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower me. Let the words that come out of my mouth be you alone for your people that we could understand what you would have us learn from this moment in the temple, what you would have us glean from you, our Father. And we thank you, Lord, that whenever we open your word, there is an opportunity to meet with you and to know you deeper, Lord, and in knowing you, live for you better. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Grab a seat. So verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now, Cana, located in the hill country, and Capernaum is near the Sea of Galilee. So it's 16 miles northeast of Cana, and that's about a day's journey. So they would do that in a day. So let's all try to start walking 16 miles a day. Now, Capernaum becomes Jesus' adopted home for the greater part of his Galilean ministry. And who goes with him? His mother goes, his brothers, who are going to be the children of Mary and Joseph. We know that he had these half-siblings. We know in Luke 2, 7, that he's the firstborn. So that's where they go. Then in verse 13, we see, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So now we know that we're in Capernaum. And then if you look at this and you say, okay, they're going up to Jerusalem, you might get confused if you're a map scholar. Because you'll look at it and you'll realize that it's actually southern. But what we're talking about here is the altitude. And we would always see when there's the reference of Jerusalem, we're going to see went up. Because it's going up. We're going up physically about 2,500 feet above sea level. We're going up spiritually to the city of the king. And where we are is the Passover of the Jews. Now, of the Jews is noted there because, again, what is John doing in his gospel? He is writing it and providing details knowing that there's going to be Gentile readers of this text. So that's a moment where, again, he's making it clear, Passover, it's of the Jews. Of course, he knew that. Of course, any Jewish people reading it would know that. But he wants to make sure everything is hit for those that read this text. 
So we're going to remind ourselves of Passover, when it began. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with, ra- with water, but roasted in fire, its heads with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So in that we see the origins of this festival that we're coming up to in this scripture. We see the way that it's intended. We see the order of the Lord saying that they have to have that creature without blemish that they need to find, clearly a portrait of the Lamb who comes, who takes away the sin of the world without blemish, Jesus Christ. A foreshadowing of that. But we see this requirement. And then in verse 12 we see, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And when we look at the Lord executing judgment, I am the Lord. For those of us going through Psalms on Wednesday, everybody hopefully, at least you're listening, we remember Leave the judgment to the Lord. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's such a portrait of his blood that's given in this Passover portrait. There's this picture of what the blood does. The covering of the blood. The protection of the blood. Eternity with Jesus through the blood, for us, the believers, with the full counsel of God's word. Now, in Deuteronomy 16, we're going to turn there now, and we're going to now look where we're reminded of how Passover works. Observe the month of Aviv, and keep the Passover of the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Now that, notice this, the meaning of the symbolism within the Passover meal is seen there. That bread, the bread of affliction. That you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. 
You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. Now this unleaven that we keep see coming is important because the leaven is yeast. It's yeast. And what it represents is sin. The Passover is all about this cleansing, this purification, this removing of sin. And before it, you have to make sure there's no leaven found within your home. There's no leaven found anywhere. Get the sin out. All of it has to be cleared, has to be taken away. Passover, celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, March or April. Now, within the Gospel of John, we're going to see other feasts of the Jewish faith. Right now, again, we're just focusing on Passover. Important to note with this is that every male Jew would be required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Passover, for the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of Pentecost, for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this moment at this Passover that we're looking at right now, Our historian Josephus gives us the estimation that there would have been two and a quarter million people at the time there. Months before Passover, there would be the preparation of the roads, the preparation to get everyone ready to go to Jerusalem for Passover. It makes me think, I know I was in Long Island so much this week, it makes me think of Main Street in the town that I grew up in. For months before Christmas, they're getting everything ready, the lights and and all, clearing the way. It's a big, important time to get ready. And the journey to Jerusalem would be a journey with hearts seeking to go to God. A journey that would be going and they would need to have their unblemished lamb as they go. And whenever we hear unblemished lamb, for us with the whole counsel of the word of God, Jesus, remember the Savior. Remember Messiah come. Now the temple, in this moment, this is rebuilt under Herod. And that started around 20 B.C. And we'll see later on, next week, we won't get there this week, that that uh, is 46 years later, which gives us the accuracy of the date. And those are just little pieces that are exciting to look at because it just shows how true God's word is. Now, the temple itself, remember, had several courts. So we had the holiest of the holy, the, the center. Only the high priest could enter there once a year, Passover, to put the blood at that time. And the veil there. Then we have the court of the priest with the holy furnishings, the altar of incense, the showbread, the lampstand. Then we have the court of the men, the Israelites. And then we have the court of the women. And then we have the outermost court, about 19 acres, the court of the Gentiles. And in that court of the Gentiles, that was the only place they could go. They couldn't go elsewhere at any time. Now, when they come for Passover, there's some important things that needed to be done. They have to pay a temple tax. The temple tax is half a shekel. It's about two days' wages. But it had to be in the temple coinage. Huh? What do you mean? They couldn't just come with whatever currency they wanted. The coinage, because at the time, they, there's thoughts around emperors and weird signs on the money. But Tyrian coinage, which is what they would want, actually has some heathen symbols on there. So the reality we see is it's more about the weight and the content of the currency. And we see in the Jewish oral law, law, the Mishnah, in Becherot 8.7, we see it put there where it's explained that that currency, it has to be in the temple currency. So going to the temple for Passover, you need your tax. Going to the temple, 
you're going to need your unblemished sacrifice. So we read verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. So think of what we just talked about what's needed. You need the temple tax. You need your sacrifice. Jesus arrives at the temple and those things are being sold as business. So what's going on here? There's the journey that the individuals have to make. It's a long journey. It's a long journey to come to Jerusalem. What if something happens to your sacrifice while you get there? What if you bring it and the priest says it's not good enough? So they provide ways to get this. But notice the word temple here. There's two temples we'll see. And the temple here in Greek is the one that points to the outer court of the Gentiles. Now, for the Gentiles, that outer court was their place to worship, their place to pray. And when Jesus comes, what does he find there? He finds it now set up doing business because it's convenient. There's ease for the people coming in that. And in that business that they're doing, don't think that it was a simple, fair business. One could have traveled with a truly unblemished thing, but the priests decide, and it's like, ah, this actually isn't good enough. Let's charge you more so we can make some money. The currency exchange that would happen, it wasn't an even exchange. You give a dollar, you get back a penny. They keep the profit. That's what we're looking at. So Jesus arrives and sees business taking place in the temple. Now there's something to look at. What we just came from with the wedding of Cana, we were in the realm of joy. Remember we saw the wine has the meaning of joy, no uh, wine, no joy, etc. Right now with the temple, we're entering the realm of worship. Worship. Worshiping God. And in this moment, we see doing business. There's no pointing to prayer. There's no pointing to seeking God. We just see that business is being done. Now, this is one of the moments, youth group, you remember these when we went through Mark. We're going to look at the other gospels really quick and just see the other temple exchange. I'm not going to say anything about it yet, but we're going to look at it. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Verses 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now we go to Mark 11. We're just going to walk right through the other Gospels. Mark 11 And we're looking at 15 to 17. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now we go to Luke 19. Again, we're just walking through the other accounts of the temple. Luke 19, 45 to 46. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
So we see in these three other accounts of a moment in the temple, Den of Thieves comes up each time. And as we go after, if we read after each, you'll see that it's moving to the plot to kill him. If we go after our example today, it moves to a conversation. This is one of those things where people might look at it and try to say, there's only one. John's inaccurate. The word of God is inaccurate. It's not, it's not real. See, it's, if you read our account, there's nothing about Den of Thieves. No. Look at the placement of these. In John, this is at the start of Jesus' ministry. In the synoptic gospels, we see this occurring at the final Passover, at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's a reminder of the thick-headedness of human nature that God will reveal something, God will give a truth, temporarily listen, and then goes right back to what you want to do. And the need for continual cleansing. That's what we see there. So in verse 14 in this account, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Again, business where the Gentiles should be able to worship. Again, they have the long travel. It's about convenience. It's about making it easy. And a lesson in that for us, because convenience culture in this moment distorts God's house into business. Convenience culture leads to corruption. Because we see here that they take a place that's supposed to be worship, a place that's supposed to be for the Gentiles, and they're now turning it into a place of business. Convenience. It's something that reminds us human nature likes convenience. Think about us in our time today, 2023. We like convenience. We have smartphones. It makes life so convenient. I can, at the click of my computer, stay in bed and do church online because it's convenient. Not knocking online church if you really can't get to church. But if you're watching and you can be here, get here. Because again, the reality is don't just go for convenience. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't bring our king glory. We're not called to convenience. We're called to glorify. We're called to serve. We are not called to convenience. So in this, there's no holiness now found within the courts. It's just materialism. Jesus' answer, verse 15. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. So we see he makes a whip of cords. That's an important thing to notice at this moment. Jesus doesn't just start screaming. Hollywood distorts scripture way too many times. There's so many movies that have this moment. He comes in and it's just, and he screams and goes angry. That's not what we see right here. He makes a whip of cords. This is believed it would have been made out of the cords that might have been used to bring the oxen, to bring different animals. He's taking all of those and meticulously working them to form a whip of cords. There's an important lesson for us because we see our Savior not going to impulse. We see our Savior taking time for a thoughtful action. We've got to be like our King. When something is amiss, when something is that we could have an anger at, do we just jump right to the anger? Do we just go right out of impulse? Or do we pray? Do we stop a moment? Do we think? As he's making that whip of cords, it's a moment of thought. It's a moment of taking everything in. And then we see he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen 
poured out the changers' money and overturns the tables. So when he's driving them out, there's debate. Did he use the whip on the animals? Did he use the whip on men? Was it on both? This isn't a place to focus on Jesus as violent and angry. No. This is a place to realize context. It's the first time Mashiach, Messiah, is coming to the temple. Jesus is revealing his authority. Jesus is showing his authority in this moment. Because everything that's going on in that outer court, the priests are approving. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you don't have the authority. I have the authority. This stops now. And think about it. People, they would have been shocked at this. But think of what we looked at. What is Passover about? Cleansing. Removing of the sin. Can we really be shocked that Jesus comes into the temple and he's doing what needs to be done for Passover? Because again, this place is supposed to be a place of prayer. It's supposed to be a place of instruction. It's supposed to be a place of pious sacrifice. And it's turned to a profit maker. And in this instance, we see the reminder that God doesn't want people to profit off of religion as a business. That's not how it's supposed to go. But it stems out of a need for convenience. It stems out of a need, really, for a shortcut. How can we make it easier? Rather than faith. Rather than surrender. What does that say to us in 2023? Again, we love easy. Amazon, click, it's at my house, they drop it off, boom, I got it. But the reality is, church, we can't lose the fact that for us as believers, there's going to be suffering. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes God's will is that suffering unto death. Huh? That's so harsh. That's reality. We see it in Scripture. And that's where the Holy Spirit gives us the endurance to get through it, gives us the ability to handle it. But that's reality. That's unfair. No, it's not. What did we look at with the wine? Eternity. Is eternity not enough? Is Jesus not enough? When the suffering comes, those are the things we have to turn back to and reflect upon. Verse 16. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now notice here, he says to those with the doves, he doesn't take the doves down. It's a little nuance, but I think it's beautiful to see. He doesn't go in trying to destroy everything. He's just saying, take your stuff and get out. Knock it off. Get out. Go. Clear out. And then what does he say? Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't make my dad's house a business. And in this moment, in that phrase, he reveals to the people there his relationship to the father. His authority and his judgment, we see the wrath of the lamb shown in that moment. We see the fact that judgment will come through the lamb. Again, it's that idea where people say, oh, we focus too much on the lamb. The lamb's got many sides, friends. And we see that in that moment. Now, the house of God, the temple, it's a place, again, as we've seen, that's to be consecrated unto God. And what has happened, it's been desecrated into business and selfish gain. Reverence completely gone. A sacred space, no longer sacred, no longer reverent. 
And that's something that speaks today of the church today in many ways. Because rather than the reverence and fear of God, rather than keeping and making sure the temple stays holy at this time of Passover, and the priest making sure, no, you know what, the court of the Gentiles, Hebrews are called to bless all the nations, this is not the space to do this, let's set this up here, let's make it good in a way that honors God. No, that's not what's done, it's done for selfish gain, and sadly, that's what we see in many churches today. It's more about the number of people in the seats. It's more about having a beautiful business plan and you're set by year one. We're doing this in five and 10 and 15 rather than yielding to the Holy Spirit, rather than yielding to what the Lord wants. Now think of where we started this morning with Malachi 3. We're going to go back there because if you think of hearing that and then reading what we're reading right now, guess what? We're getting to see prophecy be fulfilled. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's coming. He's coming to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. That's the king. He comes with authority. He comes with judgment. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. It's a purging, it's a cleansing that the offering can be done right. That the offering can be done in a way that glorifies God. That the offering is done in God's design. The wedding shows his deity. The temple shows his authority. The state of the temple when he arrives shows the spiritual condition of the nation. It's dull, it's in routine, and it's about money gained. No wine at the wedding, no joy. The temple is the place of the glory of God. Taking it and making it a business, there's no glory. There's no glory there. Verse 17 of our text. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is quoting Psalm 69 verse 9, a Psalm of David, as David's wrestling as we've seen him do so much already, seeking God's help. Spurgeon of that verse writes, some men are eaten up with lechery, others with covetousness, and a third class with pride. But the master passion with our great leader, was the glory of God, jealousy for his name, and love to the divine family. What do we see here? Zeal. It's a fire. It's consuming. It's burning within. That's what's going on with Jesus in that moment. And we see from this, his disciples remembered, we get to see it later. We have the whole counsel of the word of God in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus saying, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. This would be one of those things I believe they would remember that and as they're telling of who he is to other people, they would remember. But notice what the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance. The word of God. I keep saying it. That has to be the anchor, saints. The Holy Spirit doesn't bring to remembrance our feelings, 
The Holy Spirit doesn't bring to remembrance our emotions, our mojo of what we think something is. It's the Word of God. And that's why we need to be in the Word of God. Because when we're in the Word of God, don't think, for new believer, for, for youth in the room, don't think, I'm reading this, I don't understand everything, it doesn't matter. You will be shocked if you surrender to the Lord the moments that the Holy Spirit will bring a passage that you heard here in youth group or you heard somewhere else or mom and dad said it all the time or mom said it once and suddenly it comes to mind and God uses it for his glory. That's the power of what we have here. That's the power of the word of God. The water to wine is a change. The temple is a cleansing. What is salvation? A change. We change from our old self to being his new creation. What is sanctification? Our journey of cleansing. It is our journey of cleansing. When we go onwards, we're going to see Jesus' body as the temple next week, but the clearing of the temple has lessons we need to glean right now. One thing we need to realize is activities, movements, things started by the Spirit of God must stay surrendered to the Spirit of God. No greed, no commercialism, no compromise, no man's agenda. Calvary Chapel movement was a work that started by the Spirit of God. There's ways where there's some divides and other things, but it needs to stay true to the Spirit and yielded to the Spirit of God. Our church has undergone a transition. Pastor David started this church, yielded to the Spirit of God, yielded to the Word of God. I, as your pastor, have to keep that going and stay there. Man can't get in the way. We have to be surrendered to him. There has to be a continual search of reverence. There has to be sacredness. That's a word we've lost in our culture, sacred. And if we think about, I like to always think in the reality of a duality. It's either sacred or it's secular. Sacred honors God. Secular, it's about the enemy. That's the reality. And for us as a church, when we look at the temple, we need to be mindful and checking that we never look like a secular business. Because the global church has lost its sacredness. The global church strives to look like the world. How can we make it as flashy as we need to? How can our social media be as buzzy and as cool as everybody else's? What followers can we get? What kind of experience can we create for the people when they come through these doors? What can we give them so they feel good about themselves? And the church has become more about programming than the word of God. We've lost the value on just resting of the word of God. It becomes more about me, more about self, more about making sure I have a good experience rather than his glory, rather than that I know who my king is and that I can have a deeper relationship with him. The global church rips people off financially and spiritually because we don't give the word of God. We subscribe to ideologies rather than God's word. We worship ideologies rather than truth. And then in other cases, we add dress code requirements. We add legalism. We add rules. Man doing all these things just as was done in the court of the Gentiles. Convenience. It's a lot easier if church is just comfortable and everybody has a great old time. We want everybody to feel good about themselves. I don't want anybody upset. That's not what it can be. Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill. His word, his spirit, his way. 
his word, his spirit, his way. We're not about anything else. Simple worship, no emotionalism, and no adding to this. Saints, as your pastor, this is all we need. If we move out of this, we're going to have issues. And when I say that, I really mean it. It's not about taking this and this book by this author and this book by this author and this person's show and this person's thing. And those are the things that I'm following. Well, look at how the book applies that. No, look at how God applies his word with other scriptures in context. That's how we take the word of God. That's how we follow the word of God so that we can be who he needs us to be for his glory. Because that's why we're here. That's what we're here for. We got to go back to the roots. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This comes after we have Peter's sermon, which is like a study on how to preach. The word of God, the gospel truth, nothing else. No emotion, no other stuff, just God's word. That's all we need. Bam! And then when it gets that, the Holy Spirit does what it does, and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? We're convicted. And then that's what he says. And then we read verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Have to just put this caveat, that is not a verse that says you have to be baptized for salvation. I just want to be clear on that, because that gets used in that context. To that I say, how did the thief get promised to be in paradise with Jesus? Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly, and they continued, keep going, steadfastly, steadfastly, regularly. This is all they do in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Because it's simple. They're sticking to simple things, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Going back to the roots. Apostles' doctrine, God's word, fellowship, being with one another, praising God, talking about God, relishing in his goodness, in who he is, the breaking of bread, communion, remembering what he did. Notice everything we're saying is about him. And the last piece, prayer. And when we see fear came upon every soul, and then many things happen, but that fear that comes is that reverent awe of who God is. It's not a fear that then says, I'm going to name and claim. It's a fear that says, I'm surrendered to your sovereignty. And the beautiful thing for us today, when we're surrendered to his sovereignty, we see God do. And I say sovereignty because he's going to do what is in according to his will. We're not always going to get what we want. You're not always going to have everything that you pray for just happen. But in his sovereignty, it's going to be the best for you. That's what it means to serve a sovereign God. If you challenge that, you then say God isn't sovereign. 
You then say God isn't on the throne. Don't challenge it. If that's you, search your heart and get on your knees. Go to the king and get it right. This is our savior we're talking about here. This is the God of creation. Search our hearts. Think of where we started on my first Sunday as your pastor, the Church of Philadelphia. What did they do? Kept his word, did not deny his name. How do you not deny his name? You live in accordance to his word. No compromise, no business. I don't think you can spell worship with using the letters of business. Can't happen. That's not what it should be. So that's the application for the church. Then there's the application for us individually. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We saw that last week. We're seeing it again this week. Psalm 9, I remind us, we looked this past Wednesday at what it means with our whole heart to praise him. Looking at those things coming together, Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill, God is saying, hey, folks, cleanse yourselves. Purge yourselves. Clear out so you're giving me all of you. So what is this application for the individual? What activity is going on in your temple today? Ponder that. What activity is going on in your temple today? What comes before or what do you place before your worship to God? If God came right now into the temple of your heart, of your mind, the vessel of your body, what would he see? What would he see in this moment? Because we can look and say it's the outer courts that we're talking about. It's actually, that's really far from the holiest of holies. Does that really matter? It's so far. No, the small things matter. So to you who's sitting and thinking, well, it's not a big deal, the thing that I'm thinking of in this moment. No, it is. The small things matter. The little adds up. It all matters because we got to cleanse our whole self for our king. So again, if Jesus came to your temple today, what would he find? Is one able to be quiet in your temple and pray and worship? Or is there a bunch of hustle and bustle? What are the oxen and sheep that need to be driven out? What is your heart let in? What selfishness has been let in? Youth in the room. Y'all got your little phones. I know you love them. What's on there? What's on your social media? Who are you following? Who are you looking after? All of us. What's on our pocket computers? What are we watching? What are we looking at? Where is there bitterness in us? Where is there envy? We need to ask him to search us. We need to ask him for the knock it off. We need the refiner's fire that we hear of in Malachi, King Jesus, to cleanse us. Why? Because guess what, saints? Individually, we together make up the body of his church. So if we don't do our individual work for his glory, if we don't do the individual cleansing of ourselves for our king, we can't be the church that he needs us to be for his glory. You have to do that work. What's in each of us that needs cleansing? What's in your families that needs cleansing? 
Church, we can't be uncomfortable with conviction. It's a word we barely see in the church anymore. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about sin. We want everybody to feel God. We can't go there. But we need to. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I said, men, when we, we had done this, I shared with Pastor David, I think that's the most important therefore in the Bible because of everything that comes in chapter 11 with this hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Put it aside. What's the motivation? King Jesus, the cross. He's the author and finisher. I'm made by him and for him. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Let you become weary and discouraged, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Conviction is a gift. Conviction is a blessing. Conviction is beautiful. Conviction is God saying, I love you. I'm not letting you stay like that. I'm going to refine you for my glory. So you can be even better. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. There's a motivation when the flesh says, I don't want to do what God's saying. I don't want to deal with the conviction that's hitting me right now. That we can be partakers of his holiness. Think of what we sang today. Worthy, worthy are you, Lord, singing that to him for eternity. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. God's honest. It's not going to feel great. It's not something we jump up and down. Yay, I'm convicted and going to deal with that. It's not fun, but it's essential. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That peaceful fruit of righteousness. That ability then when a trial comes from that, you withstand differently because you know his faithfulness. Look at David. What does he constantly do? He looks to the character of the God. He looks to the evidence of who God is. Can we be a church that embraces conviction? I remember the old song, uh, Empty Me. We used to sing a bunch when I first got saved. Empty me, empty me. I loved it. I was like, oh, this, I need this. Empty me, empty me, empty me. That's what we need to be. Repentance is cleansing. The church avoiding sin is a no-go. Because guess what? There's right and wrong. There's heaven and hell. That's it. We can't avoid it. 
So we have to prayerfully seek the Lord to search you, seek his whip of cords to drive out what needs to come out that you can be refined for his glory. Because he tells us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. We were made by him and for him. It's our reasonable service in Romans 12. We see it written like that. So the charge for this week is to search. The charge for this week is to search yourself. Are you more about the signs and wonders and emotion? Or are you more about the conviction and refining? Is it more about me and my experience? Or is it more about him and his glory? Jesus cleanses the temple we see two times. Why? Human nature struggles with listening. The question to you, where are you struggling with listening? Where are you struggling with embracing God's conviction? Where are you sitting and nodding your head, but still not doing what the Lord calls you to do? we got to get real. I'm asking you to get real because I care about this church. And we need to be the body of believers God needs us to be for his glory and his alone. Because this whole life is temporary And it's preparing us for eternity with him. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. That's what's going on. Business. But, as of sincerity. But, as of from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. What's our fragrance? What's our fragrance? I think of it in some ways, if you've got a little body odor, you might need to put a little spray on, a little deodorant. Let that be the word of God. What's the fragrance? What needs to be driven out? That's the charge for this week. Tied to Psalm 9, he's searching our whole hearts. Do the searching. Men, do the searching with your brides and your families. Single parents, do the searching as the head of that household. Seek the Lord's heart on what needs to be shifted. What needs to change? You know, family, we, every night we're really, we watch a lot of TV, but we don't really ever read the Bible together. We don't ever really pray together. Let's, let's put some prayer time in. What needs to change? If he comes into your temple today, what would Jesus see that needs to be driven out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Father God, I pray that we can embrace your conviction, Lord. Father, it's a hard thing. This week was hard, Lord. But it's something we need to do, Lord God. That we don't just rush through your word, Lord, but that we thoughtfully meditate and ponder, Lord, 
to let you refine us, Father God. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for the people of this church, Lord, that we would continually say, search me, oh God. Lord, that this afternoon, we would each take the time to say, Father, search me. Tomorrow morning, we would take the time, Father, search me. Lord, that we could daily deny ourselves, that we could daily run the race for your glory. Help us, Jesus, to be who you need us to be as we were made by you and for you, Lord. Soften our hearts, Lord, and Father God, where the scales are on our eyes, remove them that we see, Lord, that we truly be a body of believers so in love with your word and your word alone as the light and lamp hidden on our heart that we wouldn't sin against you. Double-edged sword discerning our thoughts and the intents of our hearts and sharing from our lips that others would come to know you. Help us to be a pleasing fragrance to you, Lord, for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody who was here Wednesday night, remember that song? Can we sing one round of it? For those who remember it, can you help us with it? Go ahead. God, you are my king. You are my master, my everything. You are my Lord. You Beautiful afternoon.